0: And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive.
1: Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Belton. This episode is going to build off one of our previous episodes titled "Abolition Art and Activism," where we spoke with Chicago activist poet about the organization byp 100 and the movement for police abolition. This week, we'll be discussing prison abolition with an organization that I really admire from back home, which is Women on the Rise. They were founded in 2013 as a project of the Racial Justice Action Center and the Solutions, Not Punishments Collaborative for formerly incarcerated women of color and women targeted and or impacted by the criminal legal system. I quickly want to read an excerpt from this article from The New York Times titled, Is Prison Necessary? Ruth Wilson Gilmore Might Change Your Mind. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, one of the leading activists and scholars in the prison abolition movement, recently did an event with another leading scholar who I've mentioned on here before, Miriam Kaba. So I can add the link to both the article and the playback recording of the event in the show notes. But the excerpt I want to read says abolition needs not just the closing of prisons, but the presence instead of vital systems of support that many communities lack. Instead of asking how, in a future without prisons, we will deal with so called violent people, Abolitionists ask how we resolve inequalities and get people the resources they need, long before the hypothetical moment when, as Gilmore puts it, they mess up. A few years ago, I attended a town hall hosted by Women on the Rise, which opened my eyes to the idea of prison abolition. Although at the time, I didn't really have the language to necessarily call it prison abolition. But what I do remember from that event was that I got to learn from the stories, experiences, and leadership of formerly incarcerated women, formerly incarcerated black women, Not necessarily about criminal justice reform, but about what it means to imagine a world without prisons, and beyond that, understanding the importance of supporting and improving conditions for those who are currently incarcerated, as well as those who are returning citizens. One of the elements that make prisons as destructive as they are is the deliberate separation of people from their communities, whether that's through the physical location of the facility being hours away, to restrictive communication, visitation guidelines, or the lack thereof, Um, The stigma put on those who have any type of record, the lack of economic opportunity, voter disenfranchisement, you could really go on and on. All of these elements send a very clear message from society that people who commit crimes or engaged with the criminal justice system in any way are stuck with the consequences of their actions or the consequences of an unjust system forever, even if they're released from the physical barriers of that prison or jail. And my point with that isn't really to get into a back and forth moral discussion. And again, thinking beyond that and revisiting the excerpt that I read earlier, how do we work as a community to improve our conditions that holistically improve communities and more specifically prevent crime and harm at their root? But of course, with that, we have to call out there are still people, disproportionately black and brown folks who are, as we speak, incarcerated and who need community support. So again, with the moral back and forth thing, um, I feel a lot of times like when this conversation comes up, people immediately go to, well, what about rapists and what about serial killers? And to that, I found an article from Pew Research Center that explains how violent crime has not only gone down dramatically within the past 20 years or so. um, They said over 50 percent. Property crimes have also gone down over 50 percent during the same time period. And the most eye opening fact they listed was that the public perception of crime in the United States doesn't actually align with data. So that isn't to say that crime doesn't still happen, but our false perceptions and the false narratives that can sometimes um, dominate when we talk about the criminal justice system, frankly creates a lot of noise um, for the people who really don't know what they're talking about, whether that's because of data, whether that's because you know, being disconnected from the reality of these issues, um, which that ends up directly impacting public perception, which then informs policy, which then leaves us with these so-called solutions that haven't actually been informed by the people whose lives will be most affected by them. With that said, I'm going to follow my own advice and introduce this week's guest. Again, I spoke with Women on the Rise, specifically their executive director, Marilyn Wynn. This interview was one of the first that I did for this iteration of the podcast. So we talked about um, the, at that time, recent aftermath of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, as well as um, the work that Women on the Rise is doing, of course, as well as their current campaign, Close the Jail ATL.
0: Well, my background is a background. I'm formerly incarcerated. So that is the background that got me to where I am today, actually. Um, I um, went to jail. I went to jail a lot of times, multiple times, because I didn't have support. The support that is around today wasn't around during the time of my going to uh, jails and prisons. Uh, so, um, I think on my last go-round of going to prison for the seventh time, I just had a dialogue with the judge, You keeps sending me back to prison. I'm gonna keep coming back doing the same thing. I need a job, I need support, I need another alternative. Prison not working, it's never gonna work if a person can't come home and have stable housing, have food, clothes, and all the things that we deserve as citizens and human rights. If we don't have that, we're gonna continue to do the thing. The same thing. So that's where this journey started. I uh, had no idea that it would bloom into this. Um, I started out with Band Box and I started out with that because I knew if I didn't get a job where I could, or uh, interview, actually, I could probably get it. I did get an, end up with a job, but if I couldn't get an interview, interview where I could get a job that, where I could support myself and do all the things that I needed to do, myself and at this time kids as well two kids as well that I was going to eventually die in prison I went to prison six times and uh, was about to go for the seventh and the judge listened he really listened Uh, You know, we went back and forth and he talked about my record and I said yeah and I want you to look at it and I want you to really listen and the fact is that I've had 18 jobs and I lied to get every one of those jobs I didn't lie to commit no crime I lied to commit to get a job. And so I think that stuck with him and he listened and he didn't send me back to prison. And he actually sent me where I wanted to go, which it was only two things here that would support what I needed. And that was a uh, drug court, which is now called uh, accountability court. And the other one was um, a program for AIDS. I, I didn't have medicine, so I couldn't claim the AIDS, but I did claim uh, drug addiction. And so I went there, and so that journey started. I, I did get a job where I could say I'm finally incarcerated, and not have to worry about going, being terminated from it. It didn't pay that much, but I was on a mission. I was on a mission to take any job and make it work for me. So this job actually paid. It was actually eight hours a week from the beginning, and it paid six thirty-five an hour. It didn't even pay for my motor car back and forth to work, but I made it work for me. Uh, and from there, uh, I met a young lady named, by the name of Social Viviera, and she was already into uh, in the mass incarceration work and this type of work, and she asked me about starting an organization. I already had an organization, but it was not like this. The organization that I had goes inside the prison and teaches employment develop, yeah, employment development for people coming out 90 days or less and putting them on a job. But uh, and so she kept at it. And so finally, I agreed to it. And so um, we came up with Women on the Rise. I let her know that if I did anything, it's going to have to be around black women rising up. So I wanted to do something with Women on the Rise. And I wanted to close the Atlanta City Detention Center because I knew a born and raised here in Atlanta, born in the hood. I I saw roadblocks where people were. Uh, getting stopped and arrested because they couldn't afford to buy a decal or because they didn't have car insurance or they had a broke taillight. Those people lost their jobs. Those that did have jobs, they lost homes. They lost kids due to defects Uh, just because of those simple things. Those are not crimes. (laughs) Those are not crimes. And so I've always wanted to close that jail because I know for a fact that any time you get booked, into a jail, fingerprinted into a jail, you just received a life sentence. Regardless of what it is, you just received a life sentence. So that's what got me into this work.
1: And like you mentioned, you um, were really passionate about focusing on black women and I'm reading you guys' website. It talks about um, like the importance of focusing on women and families. Um, So can you speak to where um, black women or where you've seen black women fit into this conversation about um, formerly incarcerated people um, in, in conversations about criminal justice reform or prison abolition?
0: Um, well, my the the goal of that is to uplift black women, to let black women know that they got power, they have the power. I know, I, I don't know, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you can pull it out if need be. Uh, I don't know if you ever read the Willie Lynch letter. Mm-hmm. And where it says, and if you control that black woman, then you control everything about her. You control her kids. You control her family. And that is true because we are, you know, we've never been looked at as being the head of anything, basically. But we clean, we wash, we get the husband out to work. We get the kids out to work. We go to work. Then we come back and we do that cycle all over again when the man or the kids don't do that. So we are the head. And I want women to realize the work that we do and we take for granted, that means that we are the head and we can do and change anything, basically just being a woman and the things that we go through. Uh, so that is one reason I focus on these women to build their self-esteem to uh, so they can build their uh, integrity and, and things that we need. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Uh, where we have been used and abused and looked down on emotionally, sexually, and all of the, uh, and traumatized by the system, by our partners, by a lot of things. And um, I want women to know that they are worthy of, they're worthy of anything, that is what fits in their heart, what's in their mind, they're worthy of it. And so I feel like um, I, by me being the person that I am, and have over, overcame the barriers of life, and not just simple barriers. I, I went to prison when prison was chain gang. I'm 69, so I was in prison at 17. Mm-hmm. So those barriers, if I can overcome those barriers, so can you. And I want to give them that uh, space, give them that courage, give them something tangible. They see me. They see what I do, and and I pass it on to them, teach it to them. And it's like each one teach one. So that is, you know, what I hope to build with Women on the Rise. Mm-hmm. That when women get involved with Women on the Rise, they see a new black woman in themselves. And, a powerful black woman.
1: Mm-hmm. And even looking at you, you guys' uh, leadership website, like it's all, you know, black women who are leading and, um, in executive positions. So can you speak on the importance of, you know, centering in, um, centering black women's voices in leadership?
0: Yes, of course. It's just like you know, um, my organization is led by family incarcerated women of color. I'm family incarcerated. That's all I hire, and that's what I deal with. That's who I want to empower. I believe that women can change the world. We can do any we can do more than men do. Um, and I don't believe in jails. I believe in alternatives to jail and I want that in their head as well because I see a lot of women, even my age to say, no, no, call the police. I want them in jail. They did this, they did that. But they're not realizing that person's not going to hell or they're not going to die. They're going to jail and they're going to come back to that same community they left because nine times out of 10, that's the community they live in. They're coming back and they're going to do the same thing and they're coming back fiercer. So my thing is to try to change people's mindset of, People don't need jails. They need alternatives to jail. If there is a problem, a person needs to find out what their problem is and uh, try to address it for that person. And that would keep that person out of jail. Like I said, I went to prison six times. I have almost 30 felonies, maybe almost 50 arrests until I got a job, which I had to make it, but I got it. And where I can say I'm formally incarcerated, I continue to commit crimes. And if I didn't have a job today, I would probably be in prison or somewhere committing a crime. Because you got to live, you got to survive. And if there's a mental health issue, jail is not the place. If there is, uh, you know, jail is just not the place. There are people need to address the person's problem instead of putting them in jail. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, like you had mentioned earlier, the um, Communities Over Cages initiative is really trying to do that in Atlanta by closing the um, detention center. Um, so yes. can you speak on you know an update about that or where you guys are with that and um, what you guys yeah. are you know looking to do in the future?
0: Okay, so the Close to Jail Community Over Cages Close to Jail ATL campaign was formulated to close to jail and re- not just close it, because we don't want the building there for nobody else to want to make a cage out of it. We want to demolize that building and uh, repurpose that building into what we call a a wellness, equity, and freedom center. Uh, For people that's been impacted by the system, that's who it's for. For people can go in there, it it can be a city within itself. Everything that's out here on the street, even the nonprofits that we run today, can be in this building. Um, This building is 471,000 square feet. And it is uh, 14 stories high. Um, And it can, you know, uh, a lot of things can happen there.
1: So how can people in Atlanta or elsewhere just stay in the loop about, you know, the uh, Close the Cages campaign and where you guys are with that?
0: Okay, so we do on our website, we do have, uh, we have a a newsletter that goes out. And you can always go on our website. Uh, We do... uh, seminars we do a lot of things to keep people involved we do street we don't do street outreach now but we do phone banking outreach now because of the pandemic but we do a lot of activities that keep people involved and uh, uh, not only that we have built a I want to say 47 47 uh, member alliance with 47 different organizations that has members in it so out of all of that um i think people know you know hear about it then we had the task force and the task force um um we gave the 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 mayor our recommendations so we're just waiting now to hear when we gonna what we what we're saying um we can't wait we need a date Mm -hmm. we need her to tell us now uh, when is the jail closing? We're trying to get it closed before uh the end of the year and start demolition on it. Gotcha.
1: And then, what do you guys envision? I know you mentioned um having like nonprofit spaces or just a community space. What specifically do, do you envision for the center?
0: Uh, I envision like I said, a city within itself: care, mental health care, drug addiction, temporary housing, several types of daycare services, um. All, all the things that folks need out here, driving schools, uh, it's not a driving school, but, you know, when people, the court sends you to this little rinky-dinky thing when you can't, uh, when you license licensed uh, with the SR-22 thing, stuff like that for folks that keep them caught up in the system where they can't pay their fines off and stuff like that. So all of that employment development, there's a huge uh, uh, kitchen that the jail has that we want to savage because we want to teach people how to become uh, culinary art, do culinary arts, cooks, and even use that kitchen to serve whatever's in that building so we can make money back into revenue. Uh, There's a laundry. There's a lot of things that we can salvage from the jail and keep it so people can learn from it. And so we're hoping to do education pieces, all types of things. So have you been on our website lately?
1: Yeah, I have. I was perusing it a little bit, but um, yeah, I've been okay. looking at it. Okay.
0: It's a picture. It's a rendering mm-hmm. of what the new jail capacity not jail, but the new building could possibly look like.
1: Mm-hmm. To kind of zoom out a little bit into the larger conversation about um, prison abolition, and of course, with you know the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Rayshard Brooks here in Georgia. Um, has sparked you know the uprisings and riots that they have that have been calling for the abolition of police so what um, what are your thoughts on like the connection between you know the abolition of police and the abolition of, of prisons are they separate or are they the same
0: they are the same uh, you know I think um, I don't believe in jails and prisons I believe in a world where there are no police in jails and prisons um and I believe I, I, in my heart, I know that there's going to be some type of something around it. I just don't see it being what I see it is. But I think the uh, it's a new training. It's a different training that a police officers need. Is not to approach a person with hostility. When I was growing up, and I was a little girl, and it was way more prejudiced than what it is now. It showed. I mean, openly, but what happened back then, I knew our police, our police that control here. I knew who they were, cause they walked the beat. They knew my name, they knew my grandmama's name. They knew basically everybody in that neighborhood cause they weren't in their cars running up trying to, they did the shit, they did it. But they knew who uh, people were and people knew who they were. You know what I'm saying, they had mm-hmm. a, a, a relationship. So, so to speak, whereas the police don't have a relationship now and they do shit out of just plain, I think, evilness. And uh, I think they hire the wrong people. They hire people right out of the service who just come from killing up folks. And that's what they do. They don't ask questions in the wall. They just shoot people. And that's who they hire. They hire them right off the bat. I think there's a new training that needs to happen uh, for, for the police officers. And actually, I think they should put them back to walking and put them on beats, so they can have connections with people.
1: And um, one thing that you mentioned that I hear people talk about a lot on social media about Atlanta is this idea that you know because Atlanta is majority black and we have a black mayor and black you know people in leadership that automatically means that we don't have you know a problem of mass incarceration or um, you know black people oh, being criminalized. Yeah. So what do you? Yeah, I was gonna ask like, what do you what do you think about that misconception?
0: No, no, no. We do have a problem with mass incarceration. I think the whole, when it comes to black people, the United States have a problem with black people. It's not just Georgia or any other state. The whole United States has a problem. Black, black people are the first to go to jail and they're the first to stay there longer than anyone else. And it can be for the same crime as a white person. White person got a joint here, I got a joint. They, they get a fine. And matter of fact, if with Rashad Brooks, if that had been a white a white person, they would have called to come and get them. They would not have been trying to handcuff them and take them to jail. The same way is when we see people walk in the street, uh, walk down the hood, and he got a beer in his hand. He going to jail, but you in the where well, they done moved it now. But the Brave Stadium used to be in the hood. And people walk into the game, white people walk into the game. They got their beer in the hand, but they don't go to jail. So that kind of stuff. And then a the person go to jail, and they can't make bun and get out. And then they stuck there. And matter of fact, they got a record now if they didn't have one from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So no, it's not so. It's all over the United States.
1: Right. You talked a little bit about, you know, the criminalization that, you know, black people face compared to white people. Um, I was looking on you guys' social media, and you had reposted this, um, this thing that talked about, like, the difference between using inmate and incarcerated. Um, so can you speak to, you know, this the language that people use when referring to formerly incarcerated folks or incarcerated folks?
0: Well, to say convict, criminal, and uh, all those languages, it de- it dehumanizes a person. Regardless of what we've done, we're people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We're people first. We're human beings and we're people first. And if you keep us, keep calling us that and stigmatizing us with that language, that's the way people are going to look at us. You need to give us, call us by our name or call us, you know, a person, people. I prefer to be called by my name. I know I got a background. I don't have to re- be reminded or I don't have to be scrutinized in front of people that don't know I have one. Let me be the one to tell them. So yeah, that's a biggie in our organization. Uh, and it's a biggie around when we're talking uh, to people that are talking to us. And that some people don't mind being called convicts or, you know, uh, yeah, those folks, they don't mind being called that, but we do.
1: What is a community member's role in this fight to, you know, humanize people and not um,
0: I feel like the community, our community, okay, we're black. So let's say it's hundred of us black here. At least, I'm going to say 65% of us, 65 of us have been impacted by the system some type of way, maybe more, because if you got a, you may not have been in, incarcerated, but if you got a brother, a mama, a daddy, or anybody that you care about that is incarcerated, guess who else is incarcerated? You as well. Because you're going, you're sending your money, uh, and, you you know, you you sing about those folks. So um, we try to teach the public, I mean the community that we are engaged with, that it's okay for a person to be formally incarcerated. It's our duty to support that person and help them stay out of the system. And It's um, our duty to do that.
1: hmm And what closing, like, call to action would you give to listeners who are looking to be a better advocate for um, formerly incarcerated folks, people who are currently incarcerated, and specifically the women that your organization serves?
0: To not judge a person. Uh, And and one reason I say not judge, because anybody can have a broken taillight and not know it and go to jail. So that makes you, what, the same as us. Um, So not to judge, but to support a person. And, you know, it it don't always have to be money, Terry, support. It can be just your voice. It can be anything, but support the cause. Support and help finding alternatives and not always screaming, police, police.
1: That's it for this episode. You can find us on social media at BetterToSpeak underscore or on our website, BetterToSpeak.org. If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.